0: Two, three, four, five. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're <quiet>. What's that? <laughs> You're quiet. I'm quired. quiet. Quieter. I'm fired. <laughs> 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 See. All right. Pray silently while I try to get myself put together. I'm on page 7. You need to be on page 1. You can go to Colossians, because we are still in Colossians, and we are in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4 today. For the morning prize, who remembers? We can probably have multiple answers, but the one that I'm looking for Who can guess what I'm thinking? What is the kind of focus, overall theme, thought of Colossians? There you go. Go, Tom. Give him a hug. That's his prize for today. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Christ, the preeminence, the sovereignty of Christ. Colossians is all about Christ. Um, It's easy for me to remember because I taught in chapter 1, verse 15, where we were talking about the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ. So if I was sitting there and I hadn't taught that, I hope I'd have remembered, but maybe not. To be honest, I might not have remembered. But uh, <clears throat> So we're thinking on Christ, thinking on the preeminence of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ. Everything that we talk about should point us back to Christ. So we are in this first section of Colossians that was doctrine was theology we're looking to christ looking about him learning about him learning about who you are in christ this second part chapter 3 verse through through chapter 4 is really more of a practical outworking of what we've learned as i've heard you know it's been put you've got the orthodoxy and chapter 3 through 4 is the orthopraxy the, the the act the acting the practical side of it so let's just start off by reading it If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together with the saints and to build one another up, to encourage one another, to take our hands and put on one another's chins and lift our gaze up to heaven. Set our eyes on things above, to think on Christ, to think on heavenly things, to think on eternal things, to fix our gaze on heaven. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... Like I said, welcome to the second part of the letter of the Colossians. The focus is the supremacy, the sufficiency of Christ. And Paul, he's been laying out these doctrines, the redeeming work of, the, of, of Christ in the life of the believer. And in chapter 3 here, he begins with some application for these doctrines. So this passage, when you're looking at it, it kind of has like uh, um, the opposite of... Of uh, double vision where you like, look at your nose it's kind of looking too, like, a, like an iguana it's looking two ways it's looking back towards the first part of Colossians and forward ahead toward the second part back towards the doctrines, forward towards the practical side and it's right there in the middle, this little verse um, we'll talk about that part later on but chapter 3 begins with a statement of log- logical argumentation so we're going to start if then, if then you have been raised with Christ, do this thing. It's, it's a logical argumentation that he's presented here. If, and in this passage, the word if can really be better understood as since. It's what is called a first class conditional clause. I read that in a book and had to figure out what it was. <laughs> What it really means is this: it infers a sense of fulfilled truth. It's not a conditional, in the sense of an either-or, or but but in a sense that what follows is certainly true. It's absolutely true. So he says, "If then, it's not if then. Well, maybe this or that or or, or the or the other. It's if then. This is absolutely true. What is following? So we enter into this section of scripture with a conditional statement. That is absolutely true of every believer all over the world. And the ones that are sitting in this room especially, we're talking to you. You should hear this word, and you should say, this is true of me. When you hear the words, since you, those of you who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ really need to listen up. And I understand, like, wait, you just said this is true of all believers, but these things that Paul speaks of are absolutely not true of you. They could be if you would humble yourself and trust in Jesus Christ. When those of you who have entered into the family of God hear these words, you need to listen up as well because these things are true of each and every one of you. And understanding that these tr- truths are true of you, they should produce in you the reactions which Paul lays out here in chapter 3 and following. So I'm going to break down this passage really into six things. The first is three truths that we're going to see throughout this section, and then three responses to these truths. And the truths are this. Remember in your mind, if you are a believer, if you're born again, if you have put your faith in Christ, these are true of you. If you haven't, if you're not sure, these can't be said of you. Matter of fact, these are definitively not true of you. I should, should bother you if you're not a believer. You have been raised with Christ. You have died and been hidden in Christ. And you will live forever with Christ. And then our responses to those should be these. You have been raised with Christ, so you should seek the things that are above. And you've died and been hidden with Christ, so you should set your mind on things that are above. And you will live forever with Christ, so you should stand firm in the hope of things above, or your future glory. So let's take a look at these three things. The first one, you have been raised with Christ. Remember, if then you have been raised with Christ can be said what? Since then. Since you have been raised with Christ... Seek these things that are above. We've just finished discussing back in chapter 2, verse 12. Look over at that real quick. Our resurrection from the dead in a spiritual sense is a present truth. This is what we saw there. It says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Right? And then he goes on in 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. You can see that Paul's not following a logical progression of the various states of the believer. See, there could be some confusion here when trying to assimilate what he's talking about. In verse one, he talks about being raised with Christ, right? And I'm talking about in verses one through four. But in in verse 3, he speaks of, what, death with Christ. And in verse 4, he moves on to this future glorification with Christ. Each of these truths are true of a believer and take place at some point in their life. To be raised with Christ involves death, and having been raised with Christ involves a hope of a future glorification. So there can be, if you're, if you're looking at this in this logical progression, there might be some confusion. But they're all truths about you is what, what, what I'm trying to get at. I want you to understand. You have been raised with Christ. You were, you were dead and hidden in Christ. And there will be a future, future glory. They're all true about you. Here in verse 1, he points the believer to his new life in Christ, having been raised with him. And as I said, to be raised would indicate that one is dead You don't raise a living person from the dead, right? Do you raise somebody that's alive from the dead? No. It'd be like somebody walking in the room, you know, some charismatic walking in, putting their hand on Brian and saying, be healed, live, rise from the dead. I'm going to raise Brian. We all look at that person like they're out of their mind, right? You don't raise somebody from the dead who's alive. When it says that you have been raised from Christ it would necessitate that you were previously dead. And that's exactly how the Bible describes those who are without Christ. Dead. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that. You can flip over there if you want with me. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Before you were born again, what were you? Thank you. We followed the devil in his wicked ways. We had no choice. We were dead. For the wages of sin is Death. death. In our sin, we were not only awaiting a final judgment, but we were walking in daily judgment we were dead because of our sins we were judged guilty and dead we're walking we were the walking dead we were unable to truly live you know people you you share the gospel with people and they say man i'm just living my life i'm just doing what i want to do is that true of the unbeliever no they're dead i I like it to look at it like this I, i use this example in Haiti, when we lived there, I learned a little bit about zombies. The television portrayal of zombies is not what a zombie is. It's not some undead thing walking around trying to consume human flesh and infect them and make them into more zombies. Did I describe that right? Yeah. Not exactly sure. I think that's how they portray them. No. In, in Haiti, the, the zombie, it's, it's a, some kind of... An, uh, of uh, what they do is a person is drugged and they're put into this semi-comatose state. And there is a spiritual aspect to it where they perform voodoo ceremonies, things and and say that they kill them and raise them to death, raise them to life. But really what they're doing is they're drugging them and it's creating this death-like state to the point where some families even bury these people. And then the the priest, the voodoo priest at some point He goes and gets them, digs them up or brings them out of that fully drug state and keeps them in this semi-drug state, convincing this person that they've been resurrected from the dead and are now under his power and under his control. From that time on, they're kept as slaves to the priest. They're alive, walking around, able to live, but they have no life of their own. This really, if you think about it, it's a perfect representation of all mankind before they're a Christian, before they're born again. They're dead, unable to do anything but serve their master, the devil. They have animated life, yet they have no ability to deny the sin that rules over them. But look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It's who he's talking about. You are dead in your trespasses. Anybody that says, I don't be, I don't want to follow God. I just want to do what I want to do. I just want to live my life. They're lying. They're not doing what they want to do. They're doing what the devil wants them to do, dragging them around, controlled, as the Bible says, by their own sinful passions and desires. They're not doing what they want to do. In a sense, they are doing what they want to do because they're wicked. But they're being drug around by by their sins, by their enemy, right? But in chapter 2, verse 4, one of the greatest statements in the Bible, it says, but God. But God what? rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved, which with he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses did what made us alive together, together with Christ that's the work of regeneration regeneration is a work of God apart from any merit of our own it's brought about by his great love and mercy it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and it's an act of grace being raised from death to life is truly a glorious thing to consider. It's a requirement to see the kingdom of God. In and chap- in John chapter 3 talks about this. And praise God, it's true of every believer. How do I know this? Well, Ephesians 2 says it. But what about Colossians, where we were just at? Is that what we're talking about? Since you have been raised with Christ. Think of this for a moment. There are those who have not been raised with Christ. They remain the walking dead, wandering about earth, controlled by the devil and his demons. That may be somebody in this room. You may be refusing to submit to Christ because you just want to live your life and do what you want to do. As we said already, you're not doing what you want to do. You're just being led around and controlled. You're dead. You're giving in to your own sinful passions and desires. The good news is, that you can be raised from death to life. You can join the others in this room that have passed from death to life if you'll just humble yourself and call upon his name. And those, like I said, that are in this room that have been born again, that have been regenerated, as as is spoken of in chapter 2 of Ephesians, you have been raised with Christ. You have been taken from that sinful place of death, brought to life, and so therefore... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This sinful world and its ways are no longer our family if you've been raised from the dead. We've been taken from the family of the evil one, and we've been put into the family of God. It should make you think of a passage that's used often in this church. What? We've been taken from the death out of the family of of the devil and put into a new family made new. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we discuss we discuss often the new life of the believer, reminding each other that we are new creations. And that's really what Paul's doing here in chapter 3, verse 1. He reminds us that we've been raised with Christ, and he exhorts us to seek the things that are above. So what does that mean to seek the things above? Well, one thing that it could mean is is in that context of the verse we just talked about, go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know, often we talk about that in, in uh, terms of, you know, I can now be uh, a new person. I can live better. I can live differently. But w- what does it mean to be a new creation? He begins this chapter of speaking of our heavenly dwelling and our eternal hope in chapter 5, right? So he's talking about this heavenly dwelling, our eternal hope. and and that we are still living in a present sin-filled world though we have an eternal hope in verse 11 he talks about the response that this reality should bring about in those who have been born again therefore knowing the fear of the lord what do we do what should our response be we persuade others And then we take part in a ministry of reconciliation. Talks about that all down through here. That we have been born again. So that now, uh, in verse verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, that we can now take part in a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, in the middle of all this, where it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He was dead, but he was raised with Christ, a new being, a new person, is all found in the middle of the context of proclaiming the good news of God, reconciling sinful man to himself. Since we have been made new or raised with Christ, and have experienced firsthand being reconciled to God, we have been made, what does he call us there at the end? We've been made in verse 20. What's it say? Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. Have you been made new? Have you been raised from the dead so that you can just seek after worldly pleasure and worldly things? You know, I'm no longer a drug addict, so I can go and work really hard and make a lot of money and become a success because I'm not held down by the, the, the sinful past that I had. Is that what Christ wants us to do? I'm, I'm no longer, uh, you know, addicted to pornography. So now I can, you know, go seek after a great marriage and just show, and, and have a big family so that everybody can see just how wonderful of a guy I am. Is that what we're to do? Seek after worldly success and worldly pleasure? No, we're to seek after heavenly things. We've been made new to be ambassadors for Christ. To seek after things that are above We no longer seek after earthly pursuits, but heavenly treasures. We are to proclaim the good news to all who will listen. We seek eternal souls for the kingdom of heaven. Have you been raised? If you're born again, you have been. So seek the things that are above. Seek eternal souls for the kingdom of God. Now you may be thinking to yourself, Brian, you're like a one-trick pony. You're constantly talking about this, right? I see that in the Bible a lot. That's just one aspect. I can't cover every single aspect that, that is encompassed in seeking things above. I'm giving you an example of one area in the Bible where if you can see where it talks about your new life in Christ, where it talks about being raised from the dead, how that applies to our life and what we seek after. This is one example. We seek after eternal souls for the kingdom. If we spent more time searching through, which I hope this will cause you to do, you might come up with a whole lot more. For now, just ask this. Ask this question. Do the things you are seeking after have eternal value to the kingdom of God? Or are they just temporary and will pass away with time? This isn't uh, perfectly... I don't know what the word is. It's just not perfect, but it's really good. A guy used to say, a pastor... Uh, when I first got saved. He was the pastor I got saved under. Somebody would talk about getting a brand new car, a new house, or something really beautiful. I walk in, look at my new jacket. He'd be like, that's going to make a really nice fire someday. (laughs) And and he was kind of just shooting me. You know, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid walks in with his first new car. He's like, that's going to burn someday. (laughs) He's like, well, come on, man. But really, isn't that a great view? How do we evaluate what we're doing? Is it eternal or temporal? That's a, just a, It's good. And, and, and that changes. I like that way of putting it because it's not a black and white, right? My job, I could use my job as a piece of idolatry where it's temporal or I could use my job as, with eternal value, right? My marriage, my, my family, everything could be temporal or it could be eternal and how I'm using it, how I'm viewing it, right? So, We look at principles for the most part in in Christianity. And so the principle is seek things that have eternal value, not things that are just going to pass away. So, back over here in Colossians chapter 3, it says, Then if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I had to just cut some things, but just know that this is a very encouraging passage here. Where is Christ seated? at the right hand of God, what is He doing there? Interceding on our behalf. He's interceding, and He's... Christ is King, right? Is He going to be King? He is King, he is king so He's ruling and reigning as well, right? So, Man, when the, when, the, when the world crashes in, and you're like, I'm having trouble focusing on eternal things because the chaos around me is, is just pushing me down, remember, Christ is ruling and reigning right now, and we have been raised with him. So then we set our minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the next truth is that you have died, and you have been hidden with Christ. So those of you that are paying attention will be thinking to yourself right now, that's about as clear as mud, right? I mean. first you say that we're dead and raised to new life in Christ and now you're saying you're dead. So, what is it? Are we dead? Are we alive? Are we being raised? Are we dying? Are we being made alive? What are we doing? Romans 6, flip over there real quick. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Everyone who has been baptized into Christ was baptized into his death. So there's that old man which was dead, as we talked about, because of sin, He he was the one that was put to death. That's how Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that the old things have passed away. That the person which was dead due to the consequences of sin was put to death and raised to newness of life in Christ. That old sinful man came before a holy God and was put into the grave with Christ. From the grave emerged a new man, a holy man. Imputed with the righteousness of Christ himself. So you have died. You've been hidden with Christ. And when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You are hidden in him. When God appears, sinful man hides. Right? It says you have died and you've been hidden with Christ. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What happened after the fall? Genesis 3.8. God came before them. And what did Adam and Eve do? They go, Hey God, good to see you. No, they hid, right? They were they were naked and afraid. Yep. They were naked and afraid. And they hid from God. And then in Revelation chapter 6, there's another interesting passage where in, in the presence of God, what do the kings of the earth do? They call for the rocks. To fall on them and hide them from the wrath of God. See, when a sinful man knows that when God appears, his sin will be revealed and God's full wrath will fall upon him. This is what took place at the cross. God appeared and his wrath fell on the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took that perfect, full wrath of God and he was fully exposed when he did that. He didn't hide, but he took it all upon himself. The elect of God were hidden in Christ, so that God's wrath fell upon him and not upon us. We are hidden in Christ. You see a foreshadowing of that in Exodus Exodus chapter 33, when the Lord hides Moses in the rock as he passes by. Christ is our rock, in that he is our foundation. We see him as that way too, right? When we think of Christ as the rock, our foundation. But he's also a rock in that he is our place of refuge. He's our hiding place. It says you have died and you've been hidden with Christ, right? Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my Stronghold, and in psalm 91 1 it says he who dwells in the shelter or the hiding place of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty you have died to sin that old sinful man is dead and then you were hidden in the rock of jesus christ having been hidden in christ we are not only secure in the presence of god but we are preserved as his children it's a refuge we've been hidden and, and then when God's wrath fell, we were protected from that wrath. But then now we are protected. We are hidden in that refuge of Christ from the attacks of the enemy. We are secure and we are preserved as his children. Your present life cannot be stolen by the enemy. It's hidden in Christ. It's secure in the refuge of our Savior. So in light of this, in light of being dead hidden with Christ, preserved, set free, and secure, what do we do? Anybody want to take a wild guess? Chapter 3. It's backwards in, in this passage. It's actually the first thing. Chapter verse 2. Set your mind on things above. Stop allowing the enemy and the world around you to draw your gaze from the Savior. The Christian life is a total transformation, mind, body, body and spirit. What did he say in Matthew 22? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. That's the greatest commandment. That old man, he's dead. He's dead. He no longer lives. And a new man lives in his place. That new man has no need for this present world in terms of peace and joy and contentment. That new man has no need for this present world in terms of peace, joy, and commitment? We hear those words, but do we believe them? I say that a couple times and ask that question for myself specifically. All that we need is found, is found in Christ. We have died and our life is hidden in Christ, in God. What use do we have for this present world? Really? What use? For the things of the world. This is the exact opposite mentality of those who have not been born again. Philippians talks about that. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Verses 18 and 19. It says this, For many of whom I have, told, I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. They are enemies of Christ, and they set their mind on earthly things. We are children of God, and therefore we set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. We're new creations. We have died. Our life is hidden in Christ. Therefore, we set our mind on things above. John MacArthur says this really well. Because this can be a temptation when people start talking about setting our mind on things above as you enter into this, uh, these even terms now, they the modern monasticism. You enter into this mystic realm of just sitting on a pillar and meditating to God. I, I can just disappear from the world. That's not what it's talking about. He says this isn't some form of mysticism. This is a practical preoccupation with heaven and the ruler of heaven, which will affect our behavior in the here and now. There's a reason that man has been in ministry for so long and infected, affected so many people. He has a great insight into the word of God and taking truths and making them make sense. This isn't some form of mysticism. Setting my mind on things above, it's a practical preoccupation with heaven and the ruler of heaven, which will affect our behavior in the here and now. It's a great way to think about this. Often when we begin to speak of these imperatives, these do these things, these things that we're commanded to do, the first thing that somebody says, get in a Bible study, get in a group, and they're going to start, and when we start talking about the imperatives, the commands of Scripture, what is so often said is this comment is almost every time said, and it's true, and it needs to be said, but sometimes I wonder, it's this, Well, we can only do this with the help of Christ, right? It's every time people have to say that. And I always wonder myself, why do we need to say that? Well, it could be that they're just aiming to guard against legalism, right? In the belief that if I just try harder, I can do this. And they want us to remind us and keep us humble and say, listen, guys, we're supposed to do these things, but you can only do it with Christ. Because if you try to do it under your own power and earn the favor of God you're going to miss it that's not what it's about we're commanded to do these things under his power but i wonder if sometimes it's also a uh, it's just a conviction and they're trying to appease their own lack of discipline or effort they want to remind everybody that we can't do this because we're incapable and that kind of makes me feel a little bit better because i don't have enough discipline in my life to do these things that i know i'm supposed to be doing like I said, this is true and we can't live apart from Christ but why is this so often our focus? Doesn't the Bible say to do these things? If it says to do them, perhaps the Lord expects us to do them. If it, 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 maybe we should just start doing them, right? Just, just do it. And, and allow the conviction to set in that we didn't. Allow that reminder to come to set in that we need christ to do it seek his forgiveness if we need it and then just do it just do it maybe if the bible says to set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth we should set our mind on things that are above and not on things that are are on the earth it's really a novel idea i think uh david miller does anybody know david miller An old evangelist. He was uh, very instrumental in uh, helping the Baptists not go off the rails back in the 80s. Um, But supposedly, he was sitting with another very, very prominent pastor that's known for his mind and his. I heard him tell this story. It was him or somebody. It was at one of the conferences we were at, and they were talking about him. And the story goes they were sitting at a dinner dinner table, and David Miller is uh, crippled. So he can't open his Bible. He'll just come out on stage and speak and just rattle off Scripture, insane amounts of Scripture. And this other pastor that you would all know told him, he says, Brother Miller, I just really wish I could memorize Scripture the way you do. (laughs) And he's an old guy that's been there, done that, so he can respond this way to this guy. He said, well, perhaps, son, you're just not trying hard enough. (laughs) And I was like... Oh, you know, he took him from this guy. I just wish I could be, you know, <laughs> a compliment to just beat down, right? But maybe that is what is true about us, right? I know it's true about me. There's so many things that I want to do. I've told people, man, I would love to play the piano. I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. You want to play it, but you don't want to work hard enough to learn how to do it, right? We want to do a lot of things, but are we disciplined? Are we, are we trying? So God says, set our minds on things above. What should we be doing? Set our minds on things above. So what are these things that are above and these earthly things? Well, he gives us an example of these earthly things in just a few verses. If you jump down to five, you're going to see a bunch of them. I'm not going to spend much, too much time on this because Mark, uh, well, Mark Stevenson and Thomas are both going to be looking at some of these over the next few weeks. I'll just say this. The things of the earth are things which are antithetical to God. They pull us away from our worship of Him and our hope in Him. And we're going to learn a lot more about those in the next couple weeks. So the things above, what might they be? How can I set my mind on them? So in studying this, I found a practical uh, list that might help us with this. And it, again, doesn't include everything, but it's a little short practical list. It's from a sermon by Reverend Bruce Gatchi. I'm sure I mispronounced that. But here's some points. Pause often to look at the clouds and think of the day when Christ will come in the, cr- in the clouds. It's practical. Set my mind on things above. Pause. Look at the clouds and ponder Acts chapter 1. The same way he went, he's coming back. Hear the thunder and rejoice that the God who made the powerful storms is the God who holds your hand and loves you with an everlasting love. Next time a rainstorm comes, set your mind on things above, not on the fact that your roof might be leaking. See the people around you and remember that these are people that matter to God. They're not people that have just woke up today trying to ruin your life. It's a great thing to remember, right? You get annoyed with your coworkers or your people be like, you know what? These people matter to God. He created them. Set my mind on things above. You see a hearse or a cemetery, remember that death is not the end but a beginning, a victory, a homegoing. John Barrows. Does anybody know who he is? Anybody know John? Wow. He was a guy that was in uh, R.C. Sproul's church, and uh, at some point, R.C. Sproul kind of encouraged him to go sit in front of an abortion clinic in uh, Orlando, and he's been there now for years. So long, standing right in front of the clinic with a little megaphone talking that he actually has worn the concrete down. I mean, the guy's just faithful every day. He just died. Uh, this weekend uh, Friday, I think, but he, he, he was he's been there so much he was getting mail at the clinic. Yeah. The clinic workers invited him to a Thanksgiving dinner with them at one point. He died, and his wife posted uh, kind of a te- uh, testimony to him saying he's received his reward, you know she's hurting but He's received his reward. He's faithfully served the Lord for all those years. And now he's in heaven. When we see a cemetery, don't think about the sad part of death. Think about heavenly things, the reward that's coming. Use the quiet moments in a waiting room to recount God's promises and to fellowship with him in prayer. In the times of conflict, turn to him before we respond in anger. I'm in conflict with somebody. You know what? I'm going to take a second. I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to set my mind on things above, and then I'm going to return to you and remember that you matter to him. Pause and look at the day lilies or the sunset or a star-filled night and marvel at the creative splendor of God. Practical, right? I know there's people in here because I, I look I check out each other on social media stuff. They post pictures of like birds and flowers. And that's it's beautiful you know it's not i like the ones with the dinner they're eating because it's i like looking at good dinners but it's all creative creative things of god right you just see the beauty in the world and what god's created set your it's so practical set your mind on things above these are some good practical su- su- suggestions and they help us focus our gaze heavenward but can you think of anything maybe maybe think of that list and ponder that list and see what you can come up with and then this final part here when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Our old man has been put to death. We've been raised to a new life hidden in Christ. And then Christ not only gave us life, but he is our life. He created us, in a, He created in us a new life and daily sustains that life that we now live. He is our life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ is our life both in time and in eternity. Christ who is our life will one day appear in full glory and on that day we too will appear with him. Paul mentioned this glorious mystery of eternal salvation way back in chapter 1, verse 27. says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How do we know that this is true, that we are going to appear with Him in glory? Well, one reason is it says it right here, that we will appear with Him in glory. But there's some other passages Acts one Acts eleven. I already referred to that, but let's look at it, see how fast we can do some Bible drills. Acts one eleven. Christ took off, he ascended, and the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How did Jesus go into heaven? Did he, was he standing in front of them and just went, poof, disappeared? No. What did he do? Rose up to heaven, right? How's Jesus going to come back? Same way. Is he going to be, is it going to be evident that Jesus returned? Absolutely. The same way that he took off is the same way he will return. Revelations 1-7. Great, great one. Here we go. Uh, i write that right. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So who will see Christ return? Everyone. It's not going to be a, uh, a hidden thing. Even those that, that crushed him, even those that hate him will see him and bow the knee in ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 it says that we know that we have been sealed or secured until that day by the holy spirit those in whom the holy spirit dwells can rest assured that they will see him in glory so not only is christ coming but the bible tells us that when he comes we will see him because you have the down payment the security of the holy spirit and we, we're, ta- we're taught in uh, Romans chapter 8 and in 1 John chapter 3 that we're going to be conformed into His image. We're going to be glorified and made like Him so that we can appear with Him. And in 1 Corinthians 15 it says that it's a physical bodily resurrection to eternal glory. Right? We're going to take off the perishable and put on the imperishable. We're going to be changed Death will be swallowed up in victory as we appear with Christ. And in Philippians chapter 3.20, it tells us where is our citizenship? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Christ will return, and we are going to be with Him. And so, in light of that, let's stand firm in the hope of the future glory. Verse 4 is really a hopeful verse. It elicits both joy and comfort. The truth that Christ will physically return to establish His eternal kingdom in which we will rule and reign with Him gives us hope in a troubled world. Revelations chapter 19. Verse 7 through 16. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you find yourself pulled and and drugged down by the things of the world, remember that there is coming a celebration where the church, the saints will be with the Savior, the Lamb of God, and we will reign and rule with Him forever. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. Focus your eyes on heaven. Seek those things that are above. Set your mind on things above where your hope comes from, where you will rule and reign with Him forever. He is coming. Let's go read this again. And I'll try to wrap this up. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We started this off dividing the room into two people, right? Those that are in Christ and those that are not. And those that are in Christ, these things are all true of you. And it says, when Christ appears, you will appear with him in in glory. That is an amazing truth that you can stand firm in. When the world around you is falling apart, when you're getting your head pulled back down, I mentioned at some point in this that we came to church together, we come to this room together to not only lift our eyes to Christ, but to lift one another's eyes to Christ. Take a moment this morning as you're, as you're fellowshipping, as you're talking with one another, and point your brother or sister to Christ. Set their minds on things above. Do that for one another, okay? Encourage one another. Father, we thank you for the words that you give us here. These truths that we have been put to death, our old man. We have been raised to new life. We've been hidden in Christ, And we have hope that when he returns, we will see it. It it will not be a hidden thing. We will see it. And we will rule and reign with him forever. Praise you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.